You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. City family, Luke chapter 2 this morning, Luke chapter 2, continuing our track through this chapter that surrounds uh, the birth of Christ and this Advent, which is uh, kind of the season surrounding Christmas where we reflect on the coming of Christ. We've been calling this series Watching and Waiting. Um, you, uh, you are no stranger to watching and waiting in your life, waiting for God. And um, this week, the text is about waiting resolved, which is a really wonderful thing when waiting is resolved. So let's stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word this morning. Luke chapter 2, we'll start in verse 21 and read through 38. It says this, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Y'all can have a seat this morning. Uh, So where are you waiting on God? Where are you waiting on God? This text is a word for those of us uh, who 
wait. When, uh, when I'm interpreting a text and when you, um, when you read the Bible on your own, here's a profitable question for you to ask at first. Why is this in the Bible? Like, of all the things God could have given us, why did he choose to give us this? And I think this text right here that we're spending time with today, there are at least two main reasons why God has given us this text to see Jesus. Number one, it is telling us that Jesus is a real person in real history. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, Keith spent uh, a lot of time kind of unpacking this for us, the historical reality of the resurrection, or I'm sorry, not the resurrection, the birth. That is also historically true, but later, that's another sermon, okay? Um, but this morning we see um, that Jesus was a person, that he really became human, that he really entered into the world. And here's why that matters for you this morning. When your life is exploding, you don't need a theoretical savior. You need more than a fairy tale with a good moral or a well wish at the end of the day. You need a flesh and blood savior of power to step in the mess of your life. How can an unreal savior help you in real life? We need a real savior. And this text in Luke, this whole gospel of Luke is showing us that Jesus was a real flesh and blood person. Can I remind you this morning, if you are in Christ, a day is coming when you will touch his hands. He's real. Jesus is no mere fable. He's no well wish. He is flesh and blood Lord, that's good news. It's good news. But this text doesn't only tell us this morning that Jesus existed in history. It tells us precisely who Christmas is for. Like who, who did Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, step into the world to rescue as you notice there, we read about a few people. We read about Mary and Joseph, about Simeon, and then about this prophetess, Anna, and they all share one thing in common. They take their need and they wait on God. They take their need and they wait on God. See, that is the decided factor that Christmas changes for everything, that you don't take the brokenness and the sin and the destruction of your own life and wait to be better. You don't take the sin and brokenness of your life and construct a plan to be a better person and somehow that is the thing that makes you right with God. You see, these waiters wait on God. And guess what happens when they wait on God? They are not put to shame. Not put to shame. Can I tell you, if there's one main point from this text today, I want you to grab this. Because of Jesus, whoever waits on God will not ultimately be put to shame. That word ultimately is important because guess what? If you wait on God, doesn't mean your life's going to be easy. 
Does it mean it's going to be free of pain? If somebody is telling you that if you just believe in this, uh, this God man, Jesus, that your life is going to just button up real quickly and nicely and easily, they're probably trying to sell you something. The good news of the gospel is not that immediately every broken thing is made right in the world. The good news of the gospel is that in the midst of the sin and brokenness of the world, you will have God. You'll have him. And that's a glory that can't be taken from you, friend. If you have God, you have everything you need. And so in the text here, we're going to see three things, three things that these people are waiting for that I think God has something for in us. Number one, we see people waiting to be clean. We're going to unpack that. Number two, people waiting for consolation. That's a big word. We'll unpack it. If you're like, I don't know what consolation means, that's okay. Neither did I before I studied this passage. So, and then number three, waiting for redemption, waiting for redemption. First, I want us to go back, waiting to be clean. That's what we're going to look at. Will you look at verse 21 with me? It says, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, when we read words like circumcision or purification, those words maybe at face value don't mean a ton to us, but for Mary and Joseph, those two words were everything. Purification, circumcision, they were living in light of the law of God. And the reason that they went through these, these rites where Jesus was circumcised and where they go to the temple to be purified is because they were desperately hungry to become clean. So in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with your Bible, what we essentially saw is that God gave moral laws to his people to do this and to not do that. Those are the ones you're familiar with, right? The Ten Commandments. But then God also gave the civil and ceremonial laws. Like how does life work best in a city, in, in and among the people? And then when he gives these ceremonial laws, these are essentially ways of being for the people of God that promotes cleanliness and that promotes being set apart from the rest of the world. And so goodness, when you start your year, uh, your Bible in a year plan in a couple months and you get to Leviticus and you're going, what is going on here? What are all these strange practices and sacrifices? You are reading about the ceremonial law. And when a person became unclean, it was not always that the person was in sin, right? This, this didn't mean that someone had done something that was morally wrong, but they had gone through something that meant they were in a state of being separated from the presence of God. And so Mary had just had a child, right? And there was, a, it's sort of like the recovery period. She was about to go to her six week visit to the doctor to be declared clean and healthy. 
again. And so for Mary and Joseph, they were desperately, they were desperately longing to be clean. And here's why, because when you were declared clean by the priest, you were welcomed fully back in to the fellowship of the community. You were welcomed back into relationship. And then look next here in verse 23, it says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This was a practice where the firstborn male of the family was taken to the priest and much like um, the prophet Samuel who was presented to the priest as a servant of the Lord. Think Old Testament baby dedication, right? That's essentially what was going on here. To say this child belongs to the Lord will be raised in the fear of the Lord. But after they did that, it was, it was kind of some pageantry, right? They would come and say, here's this child presented to the Lord, but here's an offering and I'm going to take my son back, right? It is sort of a, a, a ritual presenting to the Lord, but not an actual, like he's going to stay here and live in the temple with the priest and is going to learn all the rites of the priesthood. But what's interesting about our text today is that when Jesus is presented to the Lord, called holy to the Lord, we don't get any indication from this passage that Mary and Joseph pay an offering to bring Jesus back home. Jesus is presented to the service of God. This is foreshadowing who and what he is going to accomplish in his life. I want you to imagine what it felt like to be unclean, to be separated from fellowship, to be hungry for relationship without any help. Now, we're not practicing the Old Testament ceremonial law, right? But we, we can relate to feeling distanced to feeling far from God, feeling isolated. And there's a beauty in this story that where Mary and Joseph present Jesus, this baby, to the service of the Lord, that Jesus would become, as Hebrews tells us, our great high priest. And when Jesus is your great high priest, you know what that means? all of his complete cleanness becomes yours. Where those under the ceremonial law of the Old Testament were barred from fellowship until they were finally declared clean. Christian, you once and for all have been declared clean in the presence of God. There is nothing, hear me, there is nothing this Christmas that bars you from fellowship with the living God if you merely come through Jesus that this baby who was presented to the service of the Lord, he makes you perpetually clean. There's this beautiful story, I think it's over just in Luke chapter four or five, where Jesus heals a leper. I think Keith talked about this a little bit in his first Advent sermon. 
And the leper who was unclean, who was distanced from fellowship, who had to live outside of the city because of the nature of his skin condition, Jesus chose not to merely heal the leper with a word, but to heal him with a touch. You couldn't touch people who were unclean, but what did Jesus do? He touched this man who is isolated from connection, from relationship, from community, from cultural life. Jesus touches this man and he is so clean that this man's uncleanness doesn't make him unclean, but his cleanness makes the other man clean. His cleanliness, his glory, his power transfers to this man. And friend, if you are in Christ, if you have received the gift of salvation, if you have believed, if you belong to Jesus, he has transferred his cleanliness to you. There is nothing barring you from the presence of God. And so this Christmas, if you find yourself waiting to be back in relationship with God, to be in fellowship with him, to be near him. Jesus offers you closeness, connection. He offers you his cleanness. That's your Lord. But in the text, we don't only see someone waiting to be clean, we see someone waiting for consolation. Waiting for consolation. Let's look back at verse 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The text right here says that he's waiting on the consolation of Israel. You know what consolation is? It is comfort in shame. It's comfort in shame. You know, you heard a, a consolation prize, right? That's for the runner up who didn't win, right? I, I know you didn't win the trophy. I know you didn't get what you were after here, but here's a consolation prize, right? To console someone when they've lost another person is to, right, to be with them, to wrap your arms around them, to pull them close. And Simeon right here, he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He is waiting for the deliverer who would come and make everything right. Why? Because he understands the shame of his people. He's not just waiting for comfort and shame for himself. He is waiting for comfort and shame for his entire people group, the whole nation of Israel. Why? Because our friends, Israel, to say that they had a second chance with God is an understatement. And let's not get cocky, okay? It's us, too. But again and again, God would set forth the terms of the covenant and he would say, I want to have relationship with you. I want you to honor me and glorify me. And the people would say, yes, we are totally on board. And then God would leave the room and they'd be like, 
all right, let's party. You know, it was time, right? There was again and again, and this was a cycle in the people of Israel that they would fall into sin and worship false gods. And then um, God would would speak a word of truth to them through a prophet. And they would say, oh, we're, we know we're sinful. We know we're sinful. And God says, I'm slow to anger. The Hebrew phrase for slow and anger is long in nose. The Hebrew understanding of anger was that it sort of started in the gut, right? When you get mad, that's where you feel it, right? And then it kind of boils up in your chest. And until pretty soon, people can see you're, you're mad. Why? Because your nostrils begin to flare. And so when it says that God is slow to anger, if we were to literally translate that, it would say God has a long nose. It takes him a long time to get angry. And again and again, he extended mercy to these people. To say they had a second chance to be obedient was an absolute understatement. But friends, I want you to hear this this morning. The gospel is not a second chance. Because you know what we do with the second chance? The same thing we do with the first chance. The gospel does not offer you a second chance to do better. The gospel offers you a redeemer who has done better on your behalf. That's the good news here. And here is Simeon waiting. He is devout. He is trying to follow God in a culture of compromise. And God spoke this promise into his heart that he would see the Christ. And then in verse 27, it says, the spirit brings him into the temple and there are his parents holding him. And I want you to imagine Simeon looking across the room and saying, there he is the resolution to the shame of my people, the consolation for the long and toilsome struggle with sin. There he is. He took him up in his arms, the creator of the cosmos. Simeon holds him in his hands. And what can he do but break out in song? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. In verse 29, verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You know what the opposite of shame is? Glory. And Simeon says, of Jesus, what is eternally true of him. You turn shame into glory. We sing that in a song around here often. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. And that's part of the beauty, friends of the many beauties and glories of the gospel that God offers to us today. We find that Jesus, when he, when he finds us in the wrong part of town, doing everything conceivable that we should not be doing, and he opens the door and there we are caught red-handed with no place to hide, 
completely ashamed before the presence of a holy and righteous God who deserves our perfect obedience when Jesus opens the door to our shame and we're caught. He tells us the truth. This is worse than you can imagine, friend. Here. And he takes his robe off and he covers your shame. You see, that's the goodness of Jesus. Look at verse 34 in the text. It says, of Christ. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Right here, what he's saying is that Jesus brings clarity to what is real. Like Jesus is not merely saying like, hey, I know, I know you've messed up a lot. No big deal. That's okay. No problem. Right? That would be culture's word of encouragement to us. But what is Jesus's word of encouragement? This is worse than you can imagine. And right in the middle of this being worse than you can imagine, you are more loved and accepted by God than you could ever hope. Wow. True consolation, true covering of shame doesn't sweep reality under the rug. It clarifies the truth and it heals. So this Christmas, friend, at the end of the year, usually all of us are prone to begin reflecting on what was the last year like? What did I accomplish? Oh, where, where is that list of resolutions I made at the beginning of the year? Oh yeah. And I start looking through the list and going, well, I didn't get that one. I thought about that one. I didn't do it, but I thought about it, right? We start, we pull the list back out and we begin to think through. As you reflect on the year that's just passed and you begin to look forward to the year to come, can I encourage you? Lace your desires for the coming year with the consolation of Jesus. Like if you really want to change, let's say there's a, there's a sin pattern in your life that you're like, 2022 is the year, man. We're going to war. Can I tell you that war happens out of believing that there is only one who can truly cover your shame and bring salvation. This is the hope that was offered to Simeon. And friend, this is the hope that's offered to you. It's offered to you today. Waiting to be clean, waiting for consolation. And then finally, waiting for redemption. Waiting for redemption. Let's turn to our third character in the story in verse 36, it says, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. 
So this woman right there, it says seven years from when she was a virgin. That's, that's likely she was probably married between 14 and 16 years old, which was pretty common in the time period. Some of y'all are like, man, I would have been terrible at being married at 14 or 16 years old. And they probably were terrible at being married at 14 or 16. But this was the cultural norm. And so there for about seven years, her and her husband lived life and they worked And then seven years in, she lost her husband. So roughly about the age of 21, this woman loses her husband. And from 21 to 84, she has lived as a widow. The text, the details it gives us right here, it is trying to pull our hearts and our attention to this woman's reality. She knows loss and death intimately especially a woman in the first century. Women didn't have the same kind of upward mobility that they have in the 21st century West. This woman losing her fam, her husband, it was like losing her health insurance. It was like losing her sense of provision and protection in the world. This was the death of her dreams everything she could have wanted in her life. This woman knows loss and death intimately. And Frank, can I tell you, there are many of you in this room who are looking back on the last year and you know loss and death intimately. There's somebody who's not gonna be there at Christmas and it breaks your heart. I think at least part of the reason God chose to give us this little window right here was to recognize that that's exactly where Jesus shows up is in the hearts and lives of people who know loss and death intimately. And what this woman does with her loss tells us something profound. Did you see? She goes to the temple and she doesn't leave. She prays. She fasts. She worships. She seeks the face of God. Why? Because she knows that there is only one who can make all of these wrong things right. All of the death and loss that she's experienced. She knows there's only one who can actually take crooked sticks and draw straight lines. And so there she sits in the temple day after day, waiting for the Redeemer to come and make things right. She is waiting for redemption. And here is this baby. Simeon holds him in his arms. That word starts to spread. Could this be the one? Could this be the Christ? And she finds out about the Redeemer, about this baby, Jesus. And then look in verse 38. It says, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him for all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The redemption of Jerusalem, that's sort of shorthand for the redemption of the people of Israel, the whole people group right here. She has been waiting and praying and pleading with God for a redeemer and a rescuer. And when she catches wind that he's finally come, you know what she does? She goes and tells everybody else who is waiting for redemption. Verse 
This is beautiful truth. Some of you feel the tension of waiting for redemption. Things don't work the way they're supposed to work. Bodies don't heal the way they're supposed to heal. You feel the tension. You feel the longing for the day when Jesus will finally make all the wrong things right. But when you come to his feet and you see him for who he truly is, it puts something inside of you that, that immediately you begin to go to the people who are waiting around you, right? All the people who are waiting alongside you and saying, I have found the redeemer. I've seen him with my eyes. I know things aren't put back together. I know they're not perfect yet, but I've seen the redeemer. Friend, can I ask you, have you seen the redeemer this morning? Are you waiting for the redemption of both your soul and your body this morning? Make eye contact with your Lord who has come into the world to rescue you. Even as a baby, they held Jesus and they knew. Something theologians kind of debate about is like, when was Jesus self-aware that he was the son of the living God? Did that come later on in his life? Was that like, even here as a baby, like he was like somehow aware of who he was? We can only speculate until we're with him, right? But what's interesting is that whether Jesus knew in this moment or not who he was, the hands that held him knew. They saw him. In verse 33, we see his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And friends, right now, in heaven, in a body, Jesus is standing and he's ruling and reigning over the universe. He has secured redemption for all who will believe. For all who will trust in his finished work. And so waiting for redemption changes when Jesus shows up. Because friend, you are waiting with a resurrection hope a real hope. And so this, this Christmas over this next week, which is going, it's going to stress you out, right? You're going to be like, yeah, we'll be there at 1115. And then everything explodes, right? You're piling into the car. You're around your relatives who some are a treat and a delight to be around. And then others are, I'll let you fill in the blank, whatever you want to say about that, right? And right there in the middle of all of that, Jesus wants to clean you this Christmas. He wants to remind you of the fellowship and the intimacy that you have with him. Jesus wants to cover your shame. And Jesus wants to redeem you from death. All these hundreds of years, all these thousands of years, these folks waited for Jesus to come. And then he came, 
He died on the cross for our sins. He rose in victory. And now we await the second advent, the second coming of Christ when everything is going to be set right. And so friends, I just want you this Christmas to fix your eyes on the coming future with authority because of who Jesus is. I get to tell you this morning that your future is incredibly bright, that the best is yet to come. In Christ, that is eternally true for you. So I'm just asking that you'll receive that this morning. Believe it, treasure it in your hearts. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Oh, well, Christ, you know intimately how everyone is experiencing waiting for you in the room. Some of us are waiting for a child. Some of us are waiting for healing. Some of us are waiting for hope to seem as real as it is. And by your spirit, I'm asking that right now, you would do the work that I cannot do on my best day of preaching, which is to bring that hope home to each of our hearts. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you'll do it right now. We trust that you will. Thank you for showing us Jesus again this morning. Goodness, we just need to look at him over and over and over. We lose our way again and again, but God, you remind us again and again of the Savior that you have given us. We want to receive him by faith this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So friends, I want to invite you to not merely hear the word this morning. I want to invite us, not merely hear the word, but to do the word, to respond. Um, And here in New City, we tend to respond in three key ways. The first thing we do is reflect together. Where do you feel like you're waiting on God to show up in your life this morning? Will you just name that before him in prayer? Give that to him. Let him encourage you, show you Jesus again in your waiting. The second thing we do is we come to the Lord's table in remembrance. Right here, two stations in the front and then one in the back of the room. There's some juice and a small wafer. And what this juice and wafer does is it represents to us the shed blood and body of the Lord Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 11, it tells us that on the night he was betrayed, that Jesus took bread and he broke it and he took wine and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. And so friend, when you come to that table, you are remembering that you do not wait without hope. That the body and blood of Jesus was shed for you. Jesus died in your place. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you. This is a good time to just stay in your seat and reflect. To think, God, what does it look like for me to believe the gospel maybe for the first time today? And then finally, friends, we rehearse, which means we're just going to sing. We are having a dress rehearsal this morning for the second advent of Christ, for the day that he returns. 
And so when you sing, I want you to, I want you to picture the coming future. Picture every wrong has been made right. Every, every dip has been leveled. Every crooked line has been made straight. And sing with the hope of that future in your heart. New City, I love you. Respond when you're ready.